what has happened. And every time God has made a promise, that has come into fruition and it's been true. So when God says something about the future, is that a blind leap into the dark? Well, no. I mean, that's just kind of how relationships work and develop. We can have a confidence. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes God doesn't do things that, whoa, I didn't see that coming and I don't understand what you're doing here. And that's part of the cry of the prophets and of the psalmist of trying to make sense of that. But we're really actually looking at God's past tense credentials. What is this God like? And to have confidence in him beyond belief. I think there are logical reasons to think that there's something generally in the God category um, that you can get to that. Of course, you need a more specific revelation to get to the person of Jesus, but then that is the question, what is God like? And so that's the unique thing about Christianity is that we look back in order to gain confidence for the future. Two of the rarest commodities in the human heart are stability and hope. Those are things that our culture is craving. Think about it. Stability and hope. I mean, movies are about hope. Political campaigns are run on hope. We have hope in the stock market. We have hope in whatever. I mean, pick your thing. We have hope in it. Um, But whether or not that's a legitimate hope is a big question. And so we're longing for something um, to happen in the future. And in Christianity, what we're looking forward to is actually based off of stuff that has already happened in the past. And that's a very different type of hope. It's not like, oh, I have a, just have a gut feeling. I'm going to throw a dart and see what happens. But we're looking back to see the, the way in which God's character has been formed and revealed to us. Not his character isn't formed. It's always the same. But it's been revealed to us in a way that we can have confidence in him moving forward. And in doing so, that's part of our Christian growth and development is we're continuously trying that out. And we're continuously pushing against it. It's not the thing, the things that I believe the most deeply are the things that I've questioned the hardest. You don't say this is a good tool because you've never used it. You say this is a good tool because I've continuously put it under stress and I've pushed against it and it's held up to that. It's a good hammer. It works for that. I've continuously used it and stressed it. Um, The same thing with our relationships and our faith in God of I've continuously pushed into this and found God to be faithful. And that's part of our growth. And so we do that in all types of uh, different ways in life in our our spiritual um, disciplines and our times of devotion where we're growing and the ideas of practicing our fasting and prayer and meditation and scripture and practicing hospitality and living in Christian community. These are things of real growth that add to that overall uh, stability in life that God uh, gives us. Has anybody here ever uh, shelled corn in one of those like old hand crank, just a cob at a time, see some hands? It's, that's, you know, you start to feel that after a little while. That's meaningful. Um, if you've ever done that, though, with one with a big flywheel on it, and you get that flywheel going, and then when the corn cob hits it, or anything else with a flywheel, it zips right through because there's this momentum, there's this mass that has been built up, that stored energy that carries it through. And I think oftentimes what we're doing, um, I'm totally amazed by people who have just a deep and intimate faith with God and seems like their lives are flying apart at the seams. You know people like that, and they're, it is well with my soul. How does that work out? I know people, it seems like you could hand them a stick of dynamite, and it would explode, and they just walk off, you know, find another people, or, you know, one thing, and they're insulted for the rest of their lives and quit church. Um, what's the difference there in those personalities? And I think that in our spiritual disciplines, we're actually adding mass to the flywheel of our experiences with God. That's what happened in the life of Job. We look at Job, and we say, man... What a disaster. No, plural, disasters in the life of Job. But what do we know about Job up until the disasters? What was his life characterized by? Worship. Job had a life, a long life characterized by worship. He had a big flywheel, a lot of energy stored up in his knowledge of who God was and God's goodness. And when everybody was saying, curse God and die, he's like, no, God's good. I'm going to keep on with this. And it's also a beautiful story of reminding us that the suffering that we go through in life is not punishment. I think we still sometimes operate with that for some reason, and that is deeply unbiblical. But Job had that life of worship. He had a massive momentum um, that he could push through and be faithful because he had so much experience with God. Now, when we start talking about that, about growing spiritually, I like the, the line that Dallas Willard used when he says, God is not opposed to effort. He's opposed to earning. 
And I think there's a healthy balance there. If God is, it's not like we're saving ourselves in doing this, but there are things that God calls us to do that cause real growth in our lives. And that's an effort that we put into that to, to make that happen and to be conformed to the image of Christ and respond to his invitation. But we're not earning our salvation in that. And that's a good thing to, for us to keep. There's a resilience there that keeps showing up on and off throughout the, Habakkuk. Though the fig tree does not blossom and there be no fruit on the vine, the produce of the olive oil and the fields yield no fruit, though the flock be cut off from the fold, you know, all that, like, the farms burned down, basically. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will join the God of my salvation. And so you see these, these characters of great faith who have terrible things happen to them in life, but they seemingly know more about God than what that one little circumstance or big circumstance is going to let them be derailed from that. And so people often say, hey, look, you know, if there's a good God, he wouldn't allow suffering. There's suffering in the world, therefore there's not a good God. That seems like a pretty cut and dry, airtight case. And as the people who know God, we would say, well, wait, you're, you're leaving off a line there. There might be a good reason that a good God has for allowing this thing to happen. What's the additional piece of information that we need to know to put this in perspective? Because based off of what I do know to be true about God, this doesn't look like what I would expect. Surely there's a bigger plan there. There's a wait and see. Those who wait in the Lord will renew their strength because we're, we know about what God is like. And so what's happening there is that even in the midst of our, our pain, we can look back and gain stability of times in which God has been faithful to us in the past, and that invigorates us for the future. But the other thing is, is that when we're in those phases of life where we're not in crisis mode, that that's a wonderful time to focus on our relationship with God, even in the times of our pleasure, because we're growing to know God well enough that we can have confidence in him in the day of trouble. When I was a little kid, we played a lot of uh, backyard football, especially on Thanksgiving Day with all the cousins and uncles and everybody. And when you're really little, you would just want to be right in the midst of everything, and you're actually at the perfect height to get kneed in the face. Um, but, you know, your dad and uncles do the best they can to keep you under control there. And I remember these plays where we would run where one of my uncles would snap the ball, they would hand it to me this big, and then somebody would come running by and grab me, who's holding the ball, and we would score a touchdown. Um, you know, I was just tucked under the arm, holding onto the ball, and somebody else was really doing the running, and huzzah, we were big stuff, right? Um, and I think there are, are moments like that in my spiritual journey where I'm like, Lord, I've got nothing. I'm so tired. Would you hold me? And I get to carry the ball, and he runs. We score. Um, that, that God does have a, a compassionate nature to hold us in those. And so part of my prayer that I've been trying to grow into in the midst of problems in life is to pray a prayer saying, Lord, it's going to be interesting to see how you get me out of this one. Um, I'm praying a prayer of recognizing that I'm in a bad spot and I can't fix it. It's a prayer of real dependency, but on the other hand, it's a prayer of optimism, of saying, you're going to do it. I have no idea how you're going to pull this off, but let me try you again on this one. It's going to be interesting to see how you get me out of this one, because even in my life, God has been faithful time and time again in enough of a way that I shouldn't second-guess that. And what that does is I think it allows us to to live in this world, not that we won't get tired, not that we won't get weary, but that we'll live with a weariness that comes from good work, not a weariness that comes from worry. It's a, a, a deep satisfaction that God is using us and has something for us to do. And if you start looking at the way that faith is talked about in the New Testament, uh, there's that very basic level, belief in God's existence, and the New Testament's like, you believe that there's a God? Pfft, congratulations, even the demons believe that. You get no bonus points. Um, then belief that you have a confidence in the character of God is one, but then the third step in the way that belief and faith is talked about is having a belief that God can actually work through you to do something in this world. That's the next level down of that, that God can use us. There's work for us to do, and that's a, a fun thing, but it's actually a confidence that I have in God that makes me think that God can use somebody like me, not a confidence that I have in myself. I mean, somebody asked me one time, well, how did you end up doing a program at Oxford? I was like, that's a great question. I have three years of experience of chasing a rooster. You know, that, that's not the trajectory of life experience that, you know, adds to that. Um, but God can work in and through and, and use us. And the fun thing about that is, is it sort of answers this interesting question of we have problems when we're thinking about where is it that we're going in life? What is our destiny? Um, how can we know anything about the future when humanity hasn't been there is half of the problem because how do we know anything about the history of eternity in the history of the world before humanity was there. I mean, is that not a little bit weird that we have stuff written down in the Bible about what happened before there were people? 
And then we have stuff written down in the Bible about what's going to happen after there are people in this version of the world. And the reason that that's not that ridiculous is because in the middle of that, God speaks to us and teaches us that he is a good God who desires for us to know him. And we understand, and then specifically through the person of Jesus Christ, that God can reveal himself. He can reveal true things about the world that we have not yet seen or that happened beforehand. And so I have confidence in the beginning of the Bible of things that are written before there are humans because I believe God can reveal himself. And then I look back at that trajectory and I also have confidence that when God says, hey, this is what's going to happen into the future, there's a pretty good chance, statistically speaking, that that's exactly what's going to happen because the God who's been faithful to all the parts in the middle that we can observe has made himself known. So what that does then is it puts us in a position of real stability because we're recognizing that actually our hope, as we were just singing, isn't based off of, um, I am not the master of my own destiny, and that's a great sigh of relief. Um, And so it stabilizes us in that sense. Our protection, our provision comes from God. But then it allows us not to just survive, but also to have hope in that. I think of the, uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, where he's going through the valley of the shadow of death, I think that's the part, and it's, it's dark, and he has his sword out, and he's fighting his way through, and then it gets just so bad that he can't even fight everything off, and he puts the sword away, and he prays, and he just walks through, and he comes out the other side, and as he comes out of the valley, he comes up the ridge on the other side, and the sunlight comes up, and he looks back down into the valley that he just came from, and he recognizes that he thought it was bad when he was in it, but now that the sun is up and he can see down into what he's come through, it was way worse than he thought when he was actually there. And he sings a hymn of praise, and he says, I might have been catched and tangled and cast down, but because I live, may Jesus wear the crown. And so he's looking back into that and saying, there is no way I should have come through that in one piece. The fact that I'm alive, may Christ be glorified, because he, he, he protected me in that. And so he looks back to see what God has done, and it gives him a hope for the continuation of his journey of saying, if God can get me through that, There's going to be rough stuff ahead. There's still a long journey, but it's inspiring and it gives us confidence for the way that we go. You see this show up in 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 15. It's one that is often quoted, especially in the apologetics world, um, when it talks about always being prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. That idea of giving a reason, an apologia, an apologetic, give a rational defense for um, something. It's not apologizing. Sorry, I'm a Christian. Um, it's, It's a... Why are you, what is the reason that you have for having hope? Be prepared to give a reason for your hope. But what's interesting in that, a couple things. One is that when you look through 1 Peter, every time that Peter writes about the concept of hope, he's talking about what God has done in the world through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the the theme that's going on there with hope. And so he says, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have um, with gentleness and respect. That's a whole other sermon right there. But before that, coming into it, he says, do not fear what they fear and do not be afraid. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. And then he goes into that. What's interesting about that is that's a direct quote out of Isaiah chapter 8. And uh, Peter has already quoted from Isaiah chapter 8 in a couple places, so we know this is fresh in his mind. And actually, the Greek Old Testament language there parallels exactly the language in the New Testament. And so he's quoting from Isaiah verbatim, except where... He says, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. In the Old Testament, it has Yahweh in there, but set apart Yahweh as holy. And that's a fascinating Christological statement that he would feel free to take Yahweh's name out and stick Jesus' name in there. But why could Peter not come up with a way of saying, don't be afraid without plagiarizing? I mean, why did he have to quote and point back to something like that? And I, there's a broader argument here, but you can look back kind of historically through difficult times in the church, and First Peter has been a, uh, a book that people have kind of coalesced around in times of trouble. But Peter is pointing back to Isaiah chapter 8, and in, this, in that what's happening there in Isaiah that Peter is referring the New Testament church to is the Assyrians are coming through town and whacking everything. I mean, this is like ISIS is in the next zip code over. You can go to the, I think it's in the British... Is it the British Museum or the British Library? They have some of the the wall reliefs cut out from Sennacherib's conquest. These are stories that are chiseled into stone of him impaling people live on poles. I mean, it's just nasty. And that is ripping across, and they're on the next door to Israel. And I like to envision it in my mind that God reaches down and gets Isaiah by the lapels of his jacket and pulls him right up here and says, look, 
I understand there's some chaos happening in this world, but you, I want you to focus right here. Look at me. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be frightened. Recognize that I'm holy, and I've got this. And Peter takes that language and quotes it and says, Do not fear what they fear, and do not be afraid, but in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. Chaos in the world around you? Check. In your world around you? Most likely. Right here. Focus. Is that crazy? Don't be afraid. Don't be frightened. It's not to say that it's not a real problem, but focus right here. Set apart Christ as Lord. And always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. There's an assumption there that when we live our lives with that type of focus on who's really calling the shots here, that that would stabilize us in such a way that we could live optimistically even in the midst of turmoil, and that living that type of life, people would ask us. It doesn't say, go out and tell everybody the reason for your hope. That's a good idea too. But in that particular passage, he's saying, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have with the assumption that people are going to look at you and say, what is wrong with you? I want that. And be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. It goes on from there, and actually let me read to you here a little bit of of farther down as it goes through that. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for our sins, died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went, and then it talks about him going to preach to the spirits in bondage, and then the, the, the purity of a clean heart that comes through uh, baptism, and the salvation that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there in verse 22 it says, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authority, and powers in submission to him. That's the character that we set apart in our hearts as Lord and recognize that Jesus is on the throne, God's right hand with angels and authority and powers and submission to him. There are some really neat um, old ancient Near Eastern carvings and paintings and stuff where you have this um, ruler who's sitting on a throne and then down at the bottom of the throne there's a box and in the box are all of his enemies. And they're not dead. They're, they're drawn as little stick characters in this box pounding on there. And the king is kicked back on his throne with his feet on his footstool that has all of his enemies in it. Well, bam. How cool is that? Like, I got my foot right here. This is how hard it is for me to be in charge of all you guys. And it talks about that image, right, of his enemies being his footstool. And that's handed over to Christ. And this is the God in whom we have our confidence for the future who dies for us in order to put us in relationship with God. And that circles back around, and we're back into the same category we started off with on Sunday morning, of what is the purpose of all of this? No one comes to the Father but by me. It's that withness to bring you to God. That's the, that's the direction that God has for us to go, that he's calling us, that he created us to do. And then Paul gets super excited about this. There's a real resurrection. There's a real future. Death is really bad. That's why we experience it as bad, because it's bad. (laughs) That's a real thing. But there's a real victory over that. There's a real resurrection. Paul says, hey, if there's not a resurrection, this thing's over. I like to say if we ever dig up somebody wearing a what would I do bracelet, the whole thing's over. Um, A real resurrection, a real physical return of Christ. It's like the old West Virginian. Somebody asked him, what are you going to do in heaven? He's like, well, farm. You're like, what? He's like, yeah, farm. Well, actually, that might actually be a more realistic vision of a, of a physical earth, a new heavens and a new earth. What are we going to do? I don't know what we're going to do, but it's a real place. I don't know if there will be this town on that new earth. Who knows? Kind of fun to think about. It seems like there's continuity between our old bodies and our new bodies. People were able to recognize, you know, Moses and Elijah in the transfiguration, that there's a... There's a real future eternity, like we talked about last night, the home of righteousness when God returns and sorts all this stuff out. That's a real destination. That's not a a hypothetical thing. It's a God who has been faithful to do things long-term, make promises. And I think one of the things that gets interesting is if we don't know somebody very well and they just tell us something is true, 
Eh, yeah, that is an act of faith. If we've known them for 10 years and every time they said something was true, it turned out to be true, then that's a different story. It's why I trusted Julia, or my friend, that's actually her name, that's why I call her Julia, because her name was Julia, um, <laughs> to tell me the truth about that test is because I trusted her in that way. And I think what you see here in the life of Christ is it's not just that God is telling us true things that are for our benefit, but he comes and tells us truth at a significant cost to himself. It's not like that was a cakewalk. He has real skin in the game, literally, in order to do this. And so the degree of confidence that I have for my future because of the way in which God has made himself known in reality gives me a certain hope, a legitimate hope, a legitimate confidence. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see because we know something about what God is like and that stabilizes us. This all sounds, I think, like, well, it sounds nice on paper, but does it work in real life? When the, when the rubber really hits the road, how does this work out? And I had an experience, and many experiences like this, and you, you guys have too, but this is one that stands out in my mind of a lady that was my Sunday school teacher when I was a little whippersnapper. And uh, we were not great Sunday school students. When I think back over it, she had a lot of work to do on a lot of us. And... Um, just a wonderful, I remember actually some, yeah, like we would tape our memory verses on the bottom edge of the table so we could lean back and read them and get the, I'm pretty sure you don't get extra points for cheating in Sunday school on memory verses, but um, she got us lined out a little bit. But a wonderful, wonderful lady, faithful servant of the church, kind of a matriarch, and then just got a nasty, nasty cancer. Um, it took like five years to take her out, and it was just a miserable, miserable, miserable thing, like bone marrow cancer. And um, in the midst of that, she held it together better than like all the rest of us. So we were kind of leaning on her for <laughs> support and guidance, and she was the one dying. It made no sense at all. But she had such an intimate walk with God, and then I had moved away from home, and actually she had come to a, a hospital. That was just a couple hours from where I was working, and I got a call saying she was dying, and um, jumped in the car with a buddy, and we went down to the hospital, and I walked in there, and there she was. Um, I mean, I could have picked her up like this. Just uh, When I held her hand, it felt like a, a Ziploc bag full of pencils. I mean, there's just nothing to her. Sunken eyes, no hair, bandana, just a little. Um, you've seen people like that. That's tough. Death is bad. And so here I was, young and healthy, and I took her hand, and I spoke to her a little bit, and then I knelt down beside the bed, and I put my face in the side of the bed, and I just wept. And I said, why, God? This is such a good woman, such a faithful servant. Too soon. And so there I was. That was me doing that thing. And I looked up, and her lips were moving, um, and she wasn't strong enough to, like, project her voice. So I got up, and I put my ear down to hear what she was saying, and she was praying. (laughs) And she was praying, saying, thank you, Lord, for the wonderful life that you've given me. And I thank you for the sweetness of your presence in this moment of my pain. And I think when we see that type of thing happen, what we start to realize is that the best that the world can really offer us for pain is distraction. Comfort in the absence of hope is merely a distraction. If I stab myself in the femoral artery with this podium somehow an accident, you can run up here and say, oh, it's going to be okay. No, it's not. I'm going to die. Um, what's the best you can do? Comfort me, distract me until I'm dead. And oftentimes that feels like what the world has to offer. Distract yourself and then you're dead. Um, it's what Netflix is for. I don't know. Um, comfort in the absence of hope is merely a distraction. But comfort with hope leads to a peace even in the presence of our pain. Comfort with hope leads to a peace even in the presence of our pain. And it's because, same thing. Say, Let's say I just break my femur with the podium instead of stab myself with it. Um, That's going to hurt a lot. And you might come up here and say, hey, you know what? We have, uh, there's a surgeon somewhere nearby. We can rush you there and get you there. And uh, by tomorrow... We'll have that lined out. It's still going to hurt a long time, but you're going to make it. Well, it still hurts, but there's some optimism there. 
I can have a certain degree of, of psychological comfort knowing that it will be okay. And part of the beauty of what it is that God offers us as it comes to destiny is, is there a beautiful eternity that awaits us, a real physical resurrection of the dead, of the bodies of the faithful that have gone on before us? I said I wanted to be buried with a post hole digger vertically so I could have a running start at the resurrection. Um, a real... A real resurrection, a real future, a real hope, a real land, a real inheritance, a real city, a real uh, experience of the presence of God, that's absolutely true. But knowing that that is true changes the way that we live our lives now. And that's, that's a very simple thought. You guys knew that. But I just wanted to remind you of that, that that is what legitimate hope does for us, is it allows us to live our lives in a time of fear, in a place of chaos and confusion, of distraction and brokenness, where we look at the reality of the world around us and we don't say it's an illusion, we head it head on for what it is, but we recognize that Jesus didn't come and deal with ideas and illusions, he came to deal with reality. And that's what we're offered and invited into. That God made a way to himself through the person of Jesus Christ, and that's a deep, experiential, real, salvific thing that happens now, It's going to last into eternity, but that eternity in and of itself, that goodness then somehow is transferred back into the way in which we experience the pain of our lives even now. That gives us a real hope for a real future, and that is a real source of delight and gives me a ton of confidence that, yeah, I don't have a handle on everything that's going on around me, but I know who does have a handle on what's going on around me, and I'm not in control of everything that's going on around me, And I know who is in control of it all. And that's a fun way to live. So may I recommend to you the person of Jesus Christ. It matters. Christianity matters for the world. It matters for science. It matters for salvation. It matters for meaning. It matters for morality. It matters for destiny. Because it's an integrated thing. It matters for every aspect and element of what it is that we are. There's a fullness and a depth to it that I often um, sit down and cry at the end of speaking places because I was like, man, I only spoke for 45 minutes and there's just so much to the goodness of who God is and I couldn't get it all in there. And we're going to live lives like that too. There's so much. I watched my grandfather die with that huge question in his mind and he would weep saying, I just can't understand why God has been so good to me? That's a question worth dying with, and I think will one day be made known to us as we grapple with the love of a God who would create us, make himself known to us, use us in real and meaningful ways to really have an impact on his world, but to tread on it lightly with our eyes fixed on things above because we know what is yet to come and make hay while the sun shines while we're here and even in the midst of our pain, offer a real solution and a real hope to those around us, a broken world who needs it so badly. That's the direction I want to go. And I hope you want to go that way too. And it's an offer that's available to every one of us. The Lord has a lot of work to do in us all. Whether you're thinking about following him or you've been doing it for 50 years, it's a delightful way to live. And so I recommend to you the person of Jesus. And I'm happy to take your questions now as we uh, follow up from that. I think... Eric has the mic back there, and so if you want to raise your hand and ask me a follow-up question on that, uh, we'll certainly take a stab at it. Yeah. Sold. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, earlier on, you mentioned something about uh, the hammer being one of the strongest tools you have because you've beaten on it repeatedly and you know it can withstand it mm-hmm. and how that relates to certain aspects of your faith. Yeah. We've had a couple other comments made other nights about questions or doubts or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, how can we, I don't want to use the word celebrate, but how can we yeah. better and understand or perhaps embrace that process, whether it be in our lives or in someone else's, um, the questioning knowing process, that it has a benefit. 
Yeah. Specifically about questions. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a really good question. Thank you for that. Um, so I celebrate that question. Um, the questions, are, I think it, it comes down to people have said, you know, there's a difference between a skeptic and a cynic. Um, a cynic, a skeptic asks questions hoping that there's an answer, and a skinnic, a, a skinnic, a cynic, I don't know what a skinnic is, the skin skinks, or how's that? A cynic, a cynic asks questions hoping that there isn't an answer. And so what is, what is the legitimate posture behind that? Are we really seeking an answer to that question? I think those are the types of questions that God responds to. Christ does that for Thomas. Hey, unless I see this, he gives them real evidence for that. Um, there, so we have to, on one hand, affirm the openness that God has for us to challenge and to question and wrestle. I think there are, are categories where we can have clarity, specifically the ones on which God has revealed himself on those. Um, and, that's, and that's worth thinking about and working together as a community. On the other hand, the only, the only danger and the pitfall that I would see is there are in certain, and this is, I'd say, kind of a modern academic angle to this, is that you can get so educated that you know all the theories but none of the answers, um, that you, 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 you fail to come down on any particular point because you know what all the different options are. And so what we, what we do in that type of education is we just deconstruct everything and take all the pieces apart and then we're educated because we know all the options. And so what I think the best way to, to is we, if we think about our discipleship as education is to think about we do have to ask big questions. But really asking the questions, we should never fear the truth because if the truth is true, running it to its logical conclusion will always be a good thing. We don't want to step back from that. But what I'm looking for in my life is an education that um, shows me what the questions are within that field but then also gives me a framework for putting them back together and ideally put back together by someone who's teaching that that actually lives them in their lives, that I can see that as, as a, a modeled thing. And that goes all the way back to the Greek philosophers that are looking for that one who could come and live such a life that we would be honored by watching the way that they live out their answers sort of thing. And you're like, hmm, sounds like Jesus was needed. Um, so, so questions are valuable as long as we're not using them as an excuse to skirt around things that we know to be true, and as long as we're not saying, well, I'm in a questioning position as a, as a sense of kind of moral superiority of, well, it's just because you guys haven't thought hard enough about this that you have certainty on it. I think there are things that we can have clarity on, um, but it's by continually pushing into some of those. And then there are some things, too, like deciding to marry your wife. You should think long and hard about that. But once you decide about it, you should probably accept the decision that, you, you know what I'm saying? It's not a, so there, there are things that at certain points you get to a point where you're like, you know, I've thought about this for a while, and this is my decision on that. Um, There's a professor in England who I asked a question to one time, and he stopped, and he said, Nathan, he said, some questions like that, you just need to take a good six years or so and think through it. I was like, what? You know, I want a 30-second YouTube video, not six years to think through that. Um, so that, that's a reality that some people come to conclusions faster than others. But I, I think, yeah, we, we allow room for pondering. Um, but then there are times in which um, we, we have to make a decision. It kind of goes back to that old joke. People put all kinds of people, you know, about go to heaven. And there's a sign that says heaven or discussion about heaven. Um, people go to the discussion about heaven instead of to heaven. There is a point in which we, we need to make a decision on some things because we won't be able to grow or continue until we've... Uh, have some clarity on some of those foundational things. And then the testing of them is not second-guessing the existence of them, but it's the repetition that shows us the, the stability of them. But, it's a, yeah, it's a good question. Well, I have, I have a statement, I guess, and a question, or lots of questions, but uh, I'll try to limit it. Um, Last night you, you spoke about trust, and I, I've been thinking about this for a long time, that I've been taught the scripture and studied the scripture for over 70 years, and here I am, and I, for me it's reduced to trust. I trust God. I don't have as many answers as I hope to have at this point, Yeah. but I trust him. Um, and I don't know what else to do. I'm, I'm not smart enough to have the answers. But I, I am glad that I have him to trust in. The, the other question when we talk about destiny is, um, when I think about heaven, 
I don't get really excited because I'm pretty seriously introverted and I don't <laughs> like crowds. And the thought of standing in a throng of people for all eternity singing praises just really doesn't appeal to me. What do I do with that? You know, and I, I talk to people about that and they say, oh, well, you'll be different there. Okay, well, am I... Am, I going there, or is something else going there in my place? You know, I hadn't considered whether or not there's an introvert section there, of uh, sections, sections there. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know what to do with that, but there it is. Yeah, that's a, yeah, a couple of good things there. Um, I know that I end up quoting my grandpa a lot on this, but on the first thing about questions, um, his theory has always been, and I've sort of found it to be true, that you can almost think of um, knowledge and questions like volume and surface area. So if you have a, let's say you have knowledge the size of a golf ball, then your questions are proportionate to the surface area of a golf ball. But then let's say your knowledge expands to the size of a basketball, and then your questions are proportional to the surface area of a basketball. And so there is a, a complexity to the world and a grandeur to it, I would say, that's not there for our confusion, but for our excitement that the more that we know about the world, the more intricate and beautiful it is and mysterious at the same time. It's not that we know less because we know more. It's that we have uh, different categories to be curious about. And so I think there's um, hopefully something fun about that. Um, I certainly experienced that in, in my life in a way of kind of being on the edge of let's see what happens next sort of thing. Um, and that there's always a, a continual depth to what it is that God has for us to know next. Uh, there's, there's no good excuse to plateau in our Christian journey. And then, yeah, on the destiny and how that all works out, I think that um, whether or not our personalities will be totally different, that God won't be surprised by the way that he made you and will have a plan for uh, just exactly what to do with you. But it... <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to trust him on that one. <laughs> yeah, he's bringing you the mic from behind. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how I'm, if I'm going to phrase this right, but I've I've run into people already where you know we get in maybe uh, we're talking about faith and they, they don't believe in God, mm-hmm. and they don't aren't pursuing God, and their comment is kind of like. Well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm at least as good as you are. <laughs> yeah. What? So, you know, I'm just going to play this out, mm-hmm. and I don't really need God along the way. So how does it, when we talk about destiny, is there a way to use that to get people to wake up <laughs> or, yeah. or think about it in a different way? Uh, hmm. how, do, how do we approach that? Right, yeah, because it's not a, it's not a, well, it's interesting because on one hand, so so many people do assume that there is a future conscious eternal state, um, that there's just an assumption that I go there. Um, It's like, well, every country music song says it's true, so of course it is. Um, So so there's, there's that. I think, yeah, I, I often, and there are religious groups that kind of have these same ideas, and so I often, I concede the point. You probably are as good as me. Okay. But the problem is, is that goodness is not the standard. God demands perfection. And so uh, my friend John Jirogi, who works for RZIM based out of Kenya, he went, you know, so you cross the border and they ask you what you do, and sometimes you get tired and you just tell them exactly. He said, I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, convict men of the, let him convict men of their sins and offer them repentance in the name of Jesus. But the border agent said, well, I don't need that because I'm perfect. And John says, does your wife think that? <laughs> and he stamped his passport and let him through. Um, he never answered it. So I think that's the, that might be the, the, the part there on, on destiny of uh, what's good enough. Uh, good isn't the goal. Perfection of what God created for you. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Um, that's, I've met lots of people who think they're good. I've met far fewer people who actually would say that they're perfect. I mean, I've talked to people who say they're more moral than God, but that's more of just a, something you say to 
you're not really thinking and searching at that point. So I think it, what we're doing with the destiny part of that is we're asking if the, if the and it's also not a, it's not a wishful thinking. I think there are elements of ways in which you could, um, people will often say, well, you know, you just believe in a destiny because that makes you feel better. Uh, and you can turn that around and say, well, you don't believe in a destiny because that makes you feel better. Um, you know, when the argument cuts both ways, it's not a good place to get any traction on that. So I think, yeah, you, you go in the conversation by saying good isn't good enough um, because of, of God. And that would kind of go back to some of that discussion of God's holiness and his justice of, of what is it that he really wants from us? Um, why did Jesus have to die for everybody's sin in the world except for yours? You know, it's a, um, it's a, it's a very interesting statement to make um, because what you're doing is you're comparing yourself to other people rather than comparing yourself to God. And I think that is the the fundamental theological flaw in that. Uh, I think it was Tozer who said that God is more superior to an archangel than an archangel is to a caterpillar. Um, you know, it's, it's, an, it's hard for us to have that scaled proportionally to think about the holiness and the goodness and the perfection of God. Um, and so when, we're, when we compare that way, then we fall on our knees and say, God, have mercy. What's, you know, Isaiah's experience... <laughs> When he sees into who God is, woe is me, I'm undone. Um, nobody has ever looked at me and said, woe is me, I'm undone, by using me as the reference point. Um, that might not have happened to you either. But um, so it's, uh, I think the thing that we do is probably we gently remind them that, well, God is the standard, not humanity. Um, and then we pray for them that God would make themselves known to them in a way that that would uh, clarify any dispute they have in their mind about their goodness and perfection. But even Jesus answers that, right? Why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. Um, and so there, there, are, there are good people in your community, people that you respect. And so when we're saying good here, we're talking about a, uh, a deeper version and plane of that. We don't want to confuse, we don't have an overly critical view of humanity just because of the way that we, um, but when we're thinking seriously about what that means theologically, then that's a whole different, uh, a whole different level that Christ is calling us to. over here toward the middle. So just to follow up on that question, so what is our answer uh, to that person's destiny? Yeah, it seems to me that um, from what God has revealed about himself that he's a gentleman, that he loves and he woos, but he doesn't force. And... um, there are living philosophers today who say heaven would be hell for me. I don't want to be in the presence of that type of God. And I think um, God will not force them to do that, but it's not a, uh, an, eagle, an evil giggle of delight for that, but it's uh, God's brokenness for that is revealed in the person of Jesus. There's um, an old theologian, Henry Staub, who said, it's interesting that when we look at hell in the New Testament, it's described in two different ways. One, it's a hot burning, and the other is this outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he said, in either case, what you have in the, in the, in the fire imagery there is those who try to usurp the throne of God and say, my will be done. Uh, that's Uzzah in the ark to its ultimate. And he said, those who do that, um, die like a moth in the flame that you don't actually want to go in that rebellious direction. That's, the, that's been the overall posture of Satan was created to protect and then sought to be the one in charge. And then he said, and then that outer darkness is those who turn their back on God and walk out into the, walk out into the darkness there. Um, and so I think Jesus speaks brutally honestly about that uh, from, a, from a deep place of compassion doesn't avoid that. Actually, he might, I don't know how you tally it up, he might talk more about uh, hell in that sense than he does about heaven, depending on how you count talking about the kingdom of God. But there there is a biblically laid out for us a a clear either or, that not all of our destinies are the same, and that what we do in this life uh, in response to what God has done has has a role to play on that. So that's right, we shouldn't minimize that. Um, But again, I I think you asked, did you ask the question last night about whether or not we should celebrate destruction? Was that you about evil? 
Were you sitting over there last night? Okay. Yeah. But they're, they're yeah. I thought about that a little bit more. Um, that when you, in, we, we use the word hallelujah in worship often. It shows up four times in the New Testament. All of them are in Revelation chapter 19. And several of them are about God's judgment on evil and the destruction of it. And then the people cry out hallelujah. Um, but that isn't a celebration of the destruction of individuals. Um, it's, it's more of a statement about the overall systems of, of evil. Um, so, I, yeah, I think we can confidently say that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. And I'm confident to say that because God said he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. Um, so that's where I'm getting that from. But, um, yeah, how that, and then that, that raises a lot of other questions. But it's a, a reality there, and so I think we, we live lives of, of the, the embrace. We proclaim, we go. Say, hey, death, death isn't the way that it has to be. Jesus, it's, it's almost sometimes like we, people function like, well, there wasn't a problem, and then Jesus showed up, and now there's a problem, and he solves it. Um, the world stands condemned already was Jesus' message in, John's, in John 3, um, and he's, he's offering us salvation from the way in which we've... It's a, it's a classic move of humanity to take the good gifts that God gives us and poke ourselves in the eye with it. Um, and, and that's what we've done. We've put ourselves out of step with his spirit and said we're going to take the matters into our own hands, and that hasn't worked out well for us. And so uh, it's gracious that he didn't totally wipe out that rebellion but gives us space to come back into repentance. And so I think it's something that we have to acknowledge, but with a heavy heart of saying um, the best we can say about it is what God said about it and that there are different destinies. what Brian said um, a little bit in the other direction. If you have a friend or a family member that will agree with you that there is a God, that Uh it wasn't the Big Bang Theory, but they refuse to ever pick up a Bible saying that it's totally fictitious, is that another example of not forcing somebody and letting them decide for themselves? Or what could you say to them? Yeah, so I Especially think... Especially if it's a family member. Yeah, that's a, I, I think that's a great question because it's a very common one. I'm sure many people in the room have that. Um, but that, that kind of goes back to where we started of saying there's a difference between a belief in God existing and a, and a confidence in that God. And so I think the, you're not the only one who has to give answers. Everybody has to give answers to certain questions. And so I think the, the subtle question, whatever form it takes as you continue that relationship, is to ask them what that God is like. Um, now, there are people who have made fairly, William Lane Craig would be one who takes that idea of anything that begins to exist has a cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause, and starts with that idea of saying that that philosophically makes sense because we believe the universe exists and there's good philosophical and scientific reasons for thinking that anything that begins to exist has a cause, so therefore it's logically rational to believe that there is some first cause prime mover, and many people say, okay, that's fine, but that doesn't get us to Jesus on the cross. And he would push back a little bit and say, well, it does tell us a little bit more about the character of that original um, cause, as it were, because it must be a relational being, it must be a good being, that there are things that we can know by our existence and the fact that we ask questions about it, that that give us some pointer to it. But I I think the the practical part is not to, hey, hey, here's a philosophical analytical argument by William Lane Craig. It's more of that relational thing of saying, but what is that God like? Um, And... Sometimes maybe we say that because, um, like we were saying back at the beginning of these meetings, is that oftentimes we want to have the feeling like there's something that transcends us that we can connect with, but we don't want that thing to tell us what to do. And so there's a bit of a safety layer there. Um, I know people who said that they fully believed Jesus is who he said he was eight years before they became Christians. But they recognized what was going to have to change in their lives if, if they came to that if they verbalize that conclusion. Um, and so that, I think, there sometimes is a, is a, a difficult tension, whether it's subconscious or not. Uh, it was it Richard Dawkins who told John Lennox that Christianity is, a, is for people who are afraid of the... Yeah, he said Christianity is for people who are afraid of the dark. And John Lennox said, well, atheism is for people who are afraid of the light. Um, and so there's a sense in which I think we can have a little bit of a, of a healthy fear. And, and that... And, but part of that, I think, points to if that's the legitimately the position that somebody is in is that they're hesitant um, 
to think about what God is like for fear of what they might find, they might not be as far away as you think because they actually have a, a, a bit of an understanding that this is a holy God and has things for them. Uh, so I think you get to be the one who asks the questions in that situation of, tell me what that God is like, and can that God be known? Those are, those are big questions that we get to follow up with. Last night. <laughs> Last questions. <laughs> All right. Sorry, I don't mean to double up tonight, but um, my grandfather spent 50 years as a pastor, many of those years as an evangelist, and uh, he was your traditional hellfire and brimstone pastor. Yeah. I remember as a kid stomping on the stage, pounding the pulpit, everything else. Uh, your approach is noticeably different, mm. um, and I've, I've wrestled with this a lot about if God would rather us find him out of fear and compulsion yeah. or out of a desire. I think you've spoken to that desire mm. a lot. And we have concerns for those of us, those of our friends and loved ones that aren't saved. Yeah. Uh, we teach about a fear of God, but I don't want to teach my kids to be afraid of God. Yeah. How does that? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a sense there in which a fear of God is like, <clears throat> you know, what? I kind of fear my table saw. I've seen people lose fingers. I've, man, I hit myself in the chest with a piece of PVC pipe. I was trying to rip that. Took the breath out of me for a while. Um, there's a like, there's a power there that if I'm not careful of it. This goes badly. So it's, it's a good thing. You're changed. You can put this all kinds of different things. That there's a, there's a fear in the sense of a healthy respect for. Um, the problem with Uzzah touching the ark is they did not fear the Lord and what he said there. So, yeah, I don't, <clears throat> I don't think there's a sense in which God wants a, a, a cowering type of fear of who he is. But that idea that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of wisdom is not me hiding under my bed sheets, but it's having a, an awestruck understanding of the grandeur of what it is that I'm dealing with. I was listening to um, two old preachers who, one taught, yeah, one taught Church of the Brethren, one was at a Methodist church, and they were friends for 50 years preaching in the same town, and they were reflecting on their lives at a public gathering, and the Methodist preacher said to the Brethren preacher, he's like, he said, I remember at one point, he said, I was preaching hellfire and brimstone, and he said, and people were leaving my church, and they were going to your church, and you were preaching hellfire and brimstone. And he said, I could never figure out why I would preach hellfire and brimstone and people would leave my church to go hell, hear you preach about hell. And the brethren preacher said, well, the problem is you were preaching like you were hoping some of them went there. Um, <laughs> and so um, I think it is one of those things. We, we have to speak about the reality of it, but the posture in which we do it um, does make a big difference on, um, yeah, on how that goes. Well, maybe we'll go ahead and invite the musicians back up. But thank you guys so much for allowing me to be part of your uh, community for the last couple of days here. It's been fun to get to know a lot of you and, and worship with you. And we can ask that the Lord does uh, something mighty with our lives and perhaps our paths will cross again sometime in life. And if not, I'll see you on the other side. <laughs> Yes, thank you so much, um, 